Welcome to episode 21 of History Stories for My Son, the podcast where we remember that history is a story that should be shared with every generation. As always, I'd ask that if you like this podcast and would like it to continue, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review and share it with your friends. Before I get into today's story, I have an announcement. This past week, I launched HistoryStoriesForMySon.com, a website that's a companion to the podcast. I did it for a couple of reasons. One, to uh, reach people who prefer to read their stories than to listen to it, um, but also to create more of an interactive community for people who uh, want to engage with these stories. Uh, the one downside of the podcast forum, and I love the podcast forum, it's why I do it. On the plus side, it's very personal. It allows me to talk to you directly, but it's not very interactive. And so it's my hope that the website becomes a community for people to uh, talk about history, to discuss these stories. The way it's going to work, initially I'm going to populate it with written versions of a lot of the stories that I've already done. These are not going to be verbatim transcripts, but they'll be based on the same notes and scripts that I've prepared for the podcast. So the material, the substance is going to be pretty similar. And hoping for those who find a particular story interesting, you might find it interesting to then go and read the companion blog post, be able to to take your time going through uh, some of the parts that interest you more in a way that's maybe harder to do when you're just listening to a podcast. And eventually, I hope to expand it to include additional material that's not on the podcast, taking advantage of the more interactive forum. For instance, I have a notion of what I'm thinking of calling dorm room debates, of throwing out a historical topic, which maybe is controversial, offering some background, my own opinion on it, and then inviting people uh, to engage with their own opinions and hopefully spark, as the name implies, kind of a dorm room type debate, you know, throwing ideas back and forth. So I'm excited about it. I hope if you are a listener to this podcast that you uh, at least check it out. And without further ado, today I'm going to tell you the story of Revolutionary War Patriot Nathan Hale. It's the summer of 1776, the year of America's founding. The Continental Congress meets in Philadelphia to prepare a Declaration of Independence from Great Britain. That declaration will be issued, of course, on the 4th of July, but the revolution is already in full swing. The Continental Army under General George Washington has already been fighting for more than a year, mostly in and around Boston, where they've battled the British to a standstill in a series of grinding engagements. The British 
finally pulled out of Boston in March of 1776, when Washington succeeded in fortifying the Dorchester Heights high ground that overlooks Boston and its harbor, where the Continental Army was able to rain down fire with impunity upon the British defenders. But the British were far from defeated. Uh, They were only temporarily relocating to their friendly colony of Nova Scotia, what is now Canada, while they plotted their next move. Uh, The British still had overwhelming balance of force. Uh, And so the um, pullback to Boston uh, was a a strategic decision, not an admission of defeat. The British commander, General Howe, turned his sights on New York. It was more defensible than Boston, and its population was thought to be more loyalist. Howe believed that if he could establish his headquarters there, he would gain many advantages. One is control of New York Harbor as a safe place to disembark additional British troops and supplies. Another is control over the Hudson River, uh, which, if it could be maintained, would split the New England colonies in the north uh, from the rest of the country to the south. And, of course, uh, New York City, Manhattan in particular, uh, is, uh, is more defensible and didn't have the same weaknesses that Boston did. Uh, it would be harder for a besieging force like Washington to emplace artillery uh, in a way that would make it untenable to live there, uh, as had been the case in Boston. <clears throat> so... Everyone agreed that New York City was a prize, perhaps the prize, uh, and the Revolutionary War. The Patriot leader and future president, John Adams, described New York as, quote, a kind of key to the whole continent for which no effort to secure it ought to be omitted. Indeed, after Howe pulled out of Boston, the Continental Army moved immediately to New York and spent the summer of 76 trying frantically to fortify it. They were throwing up earthworks and redoubts, basically small forts protected by walls of dirt on the heights of Brooklyn, Manhattan, and uh, New Jersey Palisades. Washington knew it wasn't enough. In fact, when asked how the preparations were coming, he admitted, frankly, we are not, either in men or arms, prepared for it. On July 2nd, 1776, the first ships carrying Howe's army appeared in New York Harbor. The Continental Army lacking significant naval forces couldn't do anything about it. Oh, the, uh, the Americans had a few uh, privateers, a few really merchant ships that had been re-outfitted, but nothing that could stand up to the British Navy. So they really could do nothing but watch as over the course of July and into August, the British fleet kept growing and growing in New York Harbor until one American observer 
observed that the harbor was so crammed with ships that it looked like, quote, all of London was afloat. So many British troops staged on Staten Island that the British Army's temporary quarters there were for a time the second largest city in all of North America. Morale among the patriots in New York plummeted, while the loyalists, uh, though still loyal to the British king, became more confident. The patriots, of course, are what the uh, American revolutionaries call themselves. Now, it was clear to all that New York would soon be in British hands. On August 22nd, the British made their move, landing more than 15,000 soldiers on Long Island. Now, 15,000 might not sound that much if you're used to reading about modern wars, but for the time, for the 19th century, this was just a huge force. The British force in America uh, was the largest expeditionary force the British launched in the entire 18th century. Uh, one of the largest expeditionary armies of all time at that point. Uh, and in this single landing, they had more than 15,000 troops. It was an overwhelming show of force. And after several days of maneuvering, uh, battle was joined on August 27th, and these battle-hardened, well-trained British regulars, some of the best-trained soldiers in their world at the time, just smashed through the largely untrained Continental Army of Patriot Volunteers. As the American defenses shattered, Washington's army fled for its life. Only a lucky or as Washington believed, providential, heavy fog on the night of August 29th permitted Washington's army to escape with uh, the bulk of the soldiers uh, still able to fight another day. The British briefly paused for a couple weeks as they consolidated their gains, but Washington knew it wouldn't last long. He was desperate for information about where the British would attack next so that a more effective defense could be prepared. To that end, he called for volunteers to go back across the river into New Jersey to spy on the British positions and to learn how and when the British intended to invade Manhattan. He called for volunteers uh, rather than simply ordering somebody to go, because spying was illegal. A captured soldier in the 18th century could generally expect pretty decent treatment. Soldiering was considered honorable. European nations and their colonies generally treated each other's soldiers, if not well, at least decently. You could generally expect to be fed, given some shelter, and you'd get released either at the end of the war or maybe much earlier as part of a prisoner exchange. In fact, you might even be given parole. Uh, parole in the 18th century uh, meant that if you promised to go home and not return to fighting against your captor, then you could be released. Uh, it may sound kind of ridiculous in modern years, but uh, you have to remember that vows were taken very seriously 
back in this time. And if someone gave their word of honor, you could generally accept it. Now, some people lied, of course, accepted parole and went back to fighting. But the remarkable thing is that most didn't. And so uh, for the most part, European armies considered granting parole a reasonable means of dealing with their prisoners. In fact, there were lots of advantages to it, because if you paroled your prisoners, you didn't have to take care of them anymore. You didn't have to feed them. You didn't have to house them. And you didn't have to uh, have your men tied down guarding them. And the point of all this being that being captured when you were fighting as a soldier, while not great, wasn't the end of the world. It probably meant a stint in captivity, maybe not even a particularly long one, and then return home. But being captured as a spy, on the other hand, was very different. Spying, by which I mean taking off the uniform, going behind enemy lines, pretending to be a civilian, that was considered dishonorable. That was considered deceptive, kind of lying. It was ungentlemanly. Spies were not treated as captured soldiers. They were treated as criminals. They had no rights by law or by custom. They could be. They could expect to be interrogated, possibly tortured, and swiftly executed without any trial. And everybody knew that. So it was that when George Washington asked for volunteers, there weren't exactly a lot of people eager to step forward, even among the brave soldiers who'd volunteered to fight in the Continental Army. I was asking too much. But there was one exception. One man volunteered. A 21-year-old school teacher, recently promoted to captain in the Continental Army, said that he'd do it. He would risk almost certain death to try to get Washington the information he needed. That man's name was Nathan Hale. Born on June 6, 1755, in Coventry, Connecticut, the second child of devout Puritans, Nathan Hale was raised in a community that emphasized hard work, education, and religious belief. 18th century New England was one of the best educated societies in the history of the world up to that point, because everyone was expected to be able to read and critically to think about the Bible for themselves, which the Puritans believed to be the revealed word of God. It was a society that maintained attention somehow, attention that worked between educated individuals where every person was considered morally responsible for themselves, expected to read the Bible for themselves, think about it by themselves, and be able to draw their own conclusions. But yet there was also a strong sense of community uh, where people were expected to aid each other, both materially and spiritually as part of a religious community. 
despite being an extremely religious society, or maybe because of the type of religious beliefs they had, it was also very tolerant for its time. It had been founded by refugees from religious persecution. It was a time where secular ideas mixed with religious ideas from a variety of traditions. And young Hale, a scholarly, bookish young lad, would have spent much of his life uh, with his noses between the pages of a book. So it was that when the family sent his older brother off to Yale College, they decided that young Nathan, despite being only 14 years old, should go with him. And what's more, Yale accepted him. Uh, and far from being overwhelmed by college very demanding curriculum with mostly older classmates, young Nathan Hale thrived. He uh, was very much at home in the intellectual life. He seems to have loved the discussion and the debate of great ideas of the time. He joined the Lenonian Society, a literary and debating society, Back then, colleges considered it their central mission to teach their students how to think for themselves. And so every incoming freshman at Yale joined Lenonian or rival society where they were expected to argue the most important topics of the day and thereby learn to form and defend their own opinions on the topics. It would have been a really exciting time to be a college student. This was a time and culture that valued free discourse uh, and with momentous events going on in the world. In the years that Hale was in college, 1769 to 1773, the revolution was already brewing. Hale would have debated the various taxes and regulations imposed by the British Parliament on the American colonies. He would have been encouraged to learn to argue both sides of the topic, meaning that he likely would have taken a turn defending Parliament and arguing that these were, as the British argued, reasonable measures for the colonists to help pay for the expense of their own defense, and that Parliament had every right to suspend any governor or legislature that refused to follow British law. But his later actions suggest that after learning and debating all of these issues at length, he ultimately came to agree with the patriots, who argued that the people who lived in the colonies should decide on their own government, and that a distant parliament across the sea had no right to impose taxation or any other restriction on liberty without representation, meaning the colonists had no members of parliament that represented them. They were ruled by British law uh, without having any ability to participate in the democratic process that created that law. It's likely that the Boston Massacre of 1770, which happened while Hale was in college, where British troops opened fire on a crowd of American protesters, 
hardened the resolve of Hale and many of his classmates who would go on years later to become officers in the Continental Army. But he graduated from college before the revolution began. In 1773, uh, he went off to be a school teacher. 1773 was a momentous year. Uh, that was the year of the Boston Tea Party when a group of patriot protesters dumped an entire ship full of tea into Boston Harbor to protest the imposition by the British of a tax on tea, again, without colonists having a vote in the British Parliament who passed the tax. So the colonists felt it was illegitimate, and Hale would have learned of this. Uh, he uh, would have been following closely all of the events, but for the time being, he was distant from those events. He was a simple school teacher. Uh, he spent two years, seemingly quite happily, uh, educating children. It must have been a strange time. It must have been a strange juxtaposition, uh, going to school, teaching, uh, living very much a, uh, a normal civilian life, but at the same time watching the slow march of your country towards war. Hale would have watched in horror as the British Parliament passed the Intolerable Acts, a series of laws that imposed new taxes, largely eliminated the colonists' powers of self-government, and demanded that the colonists provide housing and food for the very British troops sent to keep them in line. Hale would have read about it when the British declared the colony of Massachusetts to be in rebellion and sent troops to destroy colonial militias. He would have learned of Paul Revere's famous ride through the night to warn the colonists that the British were coming. And the first battle on April 19, 1775 at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, he would have heard of the first shot fired by the colonists at British troops at Lexington. The shot heard round the world that made war inevitable. After two years of peaceful life as a teacher, Hale knew that he could stay on the sidelines no longer. He volunteered in 1775 to serve in the Connecticut militia, but his school contract uh, kept him from joining in the initial stages of the fighting at Boston. It wasn't until after the school year. Uh, after in July, he received a letter from a Yale classmate who had gone to see the fighting uh, that he was inspired to become a full-time soldier. His friend Benjamin Talmadge wrote, Was I in your condition? I think the more extensive service would be my choice. Our holy religion, the honor of God, a glorious country, and a happy constitution is what we have to defend. Hale was so inspired by these words that within days of receiving it, uh, he joined the full-time Continental Army at Cambridge, Massachusetts. As an educated, driven man, he was quickly promoted up to captain, and he moved with the Army from the Boston area to New York 
as they prepared for the expected British attack. He likely would have participated in those efforts to fortify New York. And he, like every other man in the army, would have known how dire the situation was. He would have seen that sea of British masts in the harbor. He would have witnessed the crushing defeat of the patriots on Long Island. In short, he was well aware of how bad things were and how badly Washington needed information about the expected British attack on Manhattan. And so he volunteered for his fateful mission. He alone of the men there agreed to risk his life and his honor by serving as a spy behind enemy lines. Hale's plan was simple. He shed his military uniform and traveled to Stamford, Connecticut, where he would take a ferry back over to Long Island in the guise of a civilian schoolteacher looking for work. This should not have been a difficult role for him to play, as, of course, he had in fact been a schoolteacher for two years. Dressed in a plain brown suit and a round hat, armed only with his diploma from Yale to prove his credentials as a teacher, he landed on Long Island on September 12th, 1776, and began asking questions. He learned everything he could of British positions, sketched fortifications, hung out in taverns, hoping some British officer would let slip key details. Events moved quickly, and on September 15th, General Howe ordered the expected British attack on Manhattan. Once again, the Continental Army crumpled before the British regulars, and Washington was forced to retreat again, this time to the Harlem Heights. Hale could have honorably abandoned the mission at this point. After all, the event he was supposed to gather intelligence about, the British invasion of Manhattan, had happened. It was done. The British had taken Manhattan. But presumably, thinking the information he was gathering would still be valuable, Hale stayed behind enemy lines and continued to ask questions perhaps hoping it would help Washington in the next battle, when Howe inevitably moved to dislodge Washington again. Then, on September 21st, a quarter of Manhattan burned in one of the greatest fires of the era. 18th century cities were horrendous fire traps, all wooden buildings and manure-strewn streets illuminated with fire, no one wanted to be blamed for this disaster. The Patriots blamed the British. The British blamed the Patriots. General Howe ordered a roundup of suspected Patriot sympathizers. It was during this time that Hale was captured. The exact circumstances of his capture are somewhat disputed. Some say his cousin, a loyalist, betrayed him. Others say a British officer recognized him somehow, or perhaps struck up a conversation while pretending to be sympathetic to the Patriot cause, and encouraged Hale to reveal his true mission. Perhaps it was a combination of the two, with a cousin tipping off a British officer who then further investigated the matter. Regardless, Hale was reportedly lured to another location near Flushing, New York, where he was invited to have dinner with a man he thought was a friendly sympathizer, someone who could help him achieve his mission. 
Midway through the dinner, British troops burst forth from hiding and arrested Hale. Hill was promptly taken to General Howe's new headquarters at a Manhattan mansion, where he was interrogated by the British commander himself. He'd been caught red-handed with maps and notes about the British troop strength and positions. He didn't even try to lie. He freely admitted he was an American soldier gathering information about the British forces. As we talked about, spying was illegal, and General Howe immediately signed Hale's death warrant. No trial, no process, nothing. The young man spent his last night in the mansion's greenhouse, waiting to be executed at dawn. He asked for a Bible. His request was denied. He asked for a clergyman. His request was denied. On the morning of September 22nd, 1776, he was marched down Post Road to a park across from a tavern where a gallows waited for him. He was marched atop the platform and asked, as was customary, whether he had any last words. He said words that have become immortal in the memory of his countrymen. I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. There is some historical dispute over whether he said those exact words. There were no recording devices, of course, at the time. So we have to rely on secondhand reports. Another version has him saying, I am so satisfied with the cause in which I have engaged that my only regret is that I have not more lives than one to offer in its service. Regardless of the details, all recorded observers seem to agree that he behaved with great composure and dignity and said something impressive, likely similar, if probably not identical, to the words that have gone down in history. The British left his body hanging for two days before cutting him down and burying him in an unmarked grave that has never been found. In some ways, it's odd that Nathan Hale went down in history as one of the iconic legends of the American Revolution. After all, if we're being brutally factual, he didn't actually accomplish much. He served in the Continental Army for a little over a year, where he didn't see much action. As for his career as a spy, he was executed 10 days into his mission, and so far as we can tell from the historical record, failed to pass any useful information back to Washington. So why did he become a hero? It is, I think, because of the idea he expressed on his death. The British could and did kill his body, but they couldn't kill the idea of freedom and the willingness of brave people to die for it. Even the British observers to the execution couldn't help but be impressed by his resolve and to tell the story of how he died. 
the American Revolution was always a long shot. It was a group of half-trained, poorly equipped provincials, farmers, shopkeepers, yes, teachers, willing to take up the mantle of a soldier to fight for what they believed in against the greatest military power in their world. Hale may have expressed it best in most dramatic fashion, but every man who joined the Continental Army had to know that he risked giving his life for his country, a country that, especially at that time, existed more as an idea than a reality. They fought anyway. The United States of America exists, ultimately, because men like Hale were willing to make that sacrifice. And that's why he's a hero. Not so much for what he did, but for the idea he came to personify. He represents all of the unknown men in the Revolutionary War and in all the wars since who made the same decision. Even the greatest warrior can't win a war all by himself. But if he can inspire others, then maybe all the people he inspired can win it. Hale himself didn't win the Revolutionary War. But men just like him, and men inspired by him, won it. They won their independence. And other men, inspired by him, preserved that country he helped create for almost a quarter millennium and counting to this day. That is Nathan Hale's legacy.